Good morning. morning. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Get there. Go. It's like Sunday school. Used to be able to hear all the rustling of the pages. Now it's just tapping. James 1, 5 through 11 is our text. The topic, James calls us double-minded If we ask God for wisdom, then doubt that he will give it to us. The title of our message, A Double Mind is a Terrible Thing to Embrace. Let's pray together. Has everybody gotten it now so we can move on? All right, thank you. Father, thank you so much for our morning. Uh, Every Sunday, Lord, I I know I repeat myself, but I'm just enthralled with that image that you give us in the book of the Revelation where you say you walk in the midst of the church. Whether I sense it or feel it, I know that it's true. That you, in a very special way, are here today, and it's your desire to give ministry to your saints because that's your nature. You're generous, you're abundant. And so, Lord, I pray that each of us would receive everything that we need today. The wisdom that we're gonna talk about, but every other grace, every other quality, Lord, that is lacking. And I pray that having been in this place, we'd be a little bit more like Jesus Christ, knowing that it's your desire to conform us into his image. And so I pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit says to us as a church and to each of us individually. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Amen. If you're gonna move from Hanford to San Diego... Plan on it being 66% more expensive overall. Your house will cost 282% more in San Diego than it does here. Economists provide these kinds of statistics so that you will know how much salary you need to maintain or to increase your current standard of living after a move. What if you are suddenly forced away from your home and become a refugee? Standard of living goes out the window when you're just trying to survive. The audience James was addressing were the 12 tribes scattered abroad. They were ethnic Jews who had received Jesus as their Messiah and were suddenly forced to flee Jerusalem due to religious persecution against them. Some may have had family to flee to. Others became refugees seeking any city where they might resettle. Their standard of living was sure to take a huge hit. Their belongings would either have already been plundered or mostly left behind. Wherever they ended up, there would be few employment opportunities, if any. Those who had monetary wealth they could carry would at best be humiliated, and at worst, they'd be in constant danger of being robbed. James has something to say to them, two things actually. Number one, In verses 9, 10, and 11, James will put their new standard of living into its true spiritual perspective. And then in verses 5 through 8, James will remind them of their old standard for living and encourage them to stick to it. Now, we are not refugees, but spiritually speaking, we are pilgrims on the earth looking forward to our heavenly home in the city whose builder and maker is God. Thus, it's probably a good idea for us to put our standard of living into its true spiritual perspective. And it's also a good idea to determine what standard we have adopted for living. Is it worldly or is it godly? I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, wisdom ought to be your standard for living. And number two, wealth ought not to be your standard of living. 
Let's take a look at wisdom first in verses 5 through 8. People are complaining that uh, Christmas decorations are out already. Well, I'm going to go beyond that to New Year's. It's almost New Year's Eve 2016, 2017. And some of you might be in the habit of making New Year's resolutions. You might already be penciling out some things. Well, before you do that, I should tell you that millennials have put their own spin on New Year's resolutions. It's now popular to choose one word instead of a list of resolutions. MyOneWord.org, for example, is one of many sites to encourage you along these lines. To make it easier for you, there's a list of suggested words and testimonials from people who have picked one word. Some of the suggested words seem insightful, hope, achieve, flourish. Those are some examples. Some of them, not so much. One person very seriously chose the word Romano. Now, first I thought they were talking about the Italian cheese. And I was getting into that. I was getting ready to choose meatball as my word. <laughs> but they were referring to the comedian. Their explanation was, you should always be like Ray Romano because everybody loves Raymond. You see how deep this is. But before you completely dismiss this one word stuff with one word of your own by saying it's all a bunch of hooey, I submit to you that James gives us a single word of resolution in this text, and it is the word wisdom. Wisdom ought to be the Christian standard for living. It's the one word that guides you in every decision. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Ask what wisdom means, and you'll hear something like this. Knowledge is knowing the facts. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. Now, that understanding of wisdom is okay so far as it goes, but notice something here. James says the wisdom he is talking about is a gift from God who will give it upon asking him for it in prayer. It has something to do, perhaps, with knowledge, as we'll see. But James says, I'm talking about something that is given to you as a gift when you ask for it. Now, as a Jew, James viewed wisdom as it related to the practice of righteousness or right living. It is the spiritual discernment that enables the believer to make decisions and choose actions consistent with God's will. One commentator defines it this way. He said, it is the regulative discretion which sees and selects worthy ends and the best means of attaining them. It's a little complicated still, but I like what he said, and we can think of wisdom then as a regulator. It is a divine regulator. In the world of mechanical engineering, a regulator is a device which has the function of maintaining a characteristic. It performs the activity of managing or maintaining a range of values. A thermostat is one example. You set it, to regulate the temperature you desire. And so it is a temperature regulator. Wisdom is a righteousness regulator. It is a divine enablement that regulates your decisions and your actions so they are consistent with what pleases God. Now, having been suddenly scattered out into a larger world, these Messianic Jews had decisions to make about how to live in the world but not be of the world. Some of those decisions were not going to be so black and white. No matter how well they knew the scriptures, they were going to be left scratching their heads, needing to make decisions. 
The best way to explain what James means by wisdom in their situation is to see it lived out in the lives of a few famous Jewish heroes of the faith. To see wisdom in action, so to speak, in those who had been in similar scattered situations. In the Old Testament, Joseph, one of Jacob's 12 sons, was hated by his brothers and sold into slavery by them. You think you have it bad in your family. First, they threw him in a pit thinking they would kill him, and then they decided to get some money for him, and they sold him into slavery. Far from home, with no hope of ever returning, and as far as we know, the only Jew in Egypt, Joseph had a lot of decisions to make about being in the world, but not of the world. He maintained God's righteous standard of holiness by refusing the advances of Potiphar's wife, But later in the story, we see Joseph adopt some of the culture and customs of Egypt, like marrying a non-Jew and eating and dressing like one. Wasn't that a compromise with the world? Well, apparently not, because nothing bad is ever said of Joseph. How did Joseph know what was consistent with righteousness in his stressful situation and what was inconsistent? James would tell us he must have asked for and received divine wisdom to make those decisions. Daniel and his three friends are a good example. Taken captive, they were forced to become assimilated in the surrounding Babylonian culture. They accepted new names. They dressed like Babylonians. And they studied subjects that we would consider the occult. Weren't they compromising with the world? Well, again, apparently not. Nothing bad is ever said about Daniel and his friends. Like Joseph, they knew when and where to draw the line. James would say they were regulated by wisdom asked for and given to them by God. I guess what I'm saying is that wisdom was such an important concept in the Jewish mind. This idea that wisdom regulated your actions and behavior that James didn't have to necessarily spell it out, you can see it working in the lives of Old Testament characters. There, there were no verses about some of the things that Joseph and Daniel and his friends faced, and yet they made decisions that were consistent with the will of God in their situation, in their scattered situation, by God's wisdom. Now, we are out in the world being pressured by cultures and customs that are non-Christian at best, ungodly at worst. We read the Bible. We don't always know where to draw the line. Things aren't always black and white. I, I wish they were. But in the Christian life, things aren't always black and white. Wisdom is what we need. Wisdom that is a gift from God to regulate our decisions and actions when things aren't so clear so that they are consistent with righteousness. Wisdom is something we're to ask for. If it's a gift... I can't learn it or earn it. We are therefore dependent upon God to give it. Uh, No matter how much I stress this this morning, I think we're still thinking that wisdom is something I acquire through learning. I, I learn and I learn and I learn and I have experience and therefore I become a wiser person and I have this wisdom. And I would submit to you, if that's the case, if it's all on me, then why do I need to ask God about it? I don't. We're talking about something that is a gift. And this, to me, is kind of liberating. I like it when things are not on my shoulders, don't you? When God is responsible and I say, God, I need wisdom and I need it now. And God goes on record as saying that he will give it. God gives it to all liberally. Not only will he give it, he gives it as a liberal. God is a liberal when it comes to dispensing wisdom. 
You can go down to the office and, yeah, I want some free liberal uh, wisdom here. Would you give it to me? And he's just passing it out like crazy. You can have it all the time in abundance. He gives it without reproach, meaning he doesn't reprove you for needing it. He wants you to ask, admitting your dependence upon him rather than declaring your independence. I'm not saying this is true of every area of our life with the Lord. We are to mature and be, you know, growing in Christ. But the idea that we will become more and more independent of God is not a biblical idea. As I grow and mature as a Christian, I find that I need more dependence on Jesus Christ. That the mature position for me to hold is that I depend on him for everything, including wisdom. And here's something super encouraging to you. No matter how much of God's word you know or don't know, you can be given wisdom to live righteously. It doesn't depend on your knowledge, but on God's promise. If God says, if you need wisdom, I will give it to you liberally when without reproach, then when you come to him as a brand new Christian or as a 60-year-old Christian, Christian who's been a Christian 60 years, God is able to give you just as much wisdom. He doesn't look at the baby Christian and say, man, I wish I could help you. Finish reading the New Testament and then you'll be in a better position for me to give you wisdom as a gift. No. So if you're a brand new Christian, I guess on one hand you'd say there's no excuse, but think of it. You can have the wisdom of God. You can make right decisions right now. And that's why, so it's interesting, a lot of times young Christians, brand new Christians, make better right decisions than Christians who've been Christians for a long time. They know by God's discernment exactly what to do and what not to do. Knowledge is not unimportant to wisdom, if you mean biblical knowledge. It's, it's, it is important. We're told in the scriptures, all scriptures given by inspiration of God, that it's profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness that the man or woman of God would be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have the Bible, we have knowledge, and we grow in it as we study. Some things are clearly spelled out in God's word. In fact, sometimes I think most things are. A lot of the questions that we have about life and living are already addressed by God's word. If something is a sin, for example, I don't need to ask wisdom about whether I should do it or not. The word of God is my regulator in those situations. If something is clearly commanded or demanded in scripture, again, I simply do it. I don't need to ask about it. But there are going to be some things that you'll encounter that aren't so clear. Let me give you an example of something that was not covered in the scriptures but ties into this uh, wonderfully. If you ask people what the greatest single example of wisdom is in the history of the world... Most of them will say it was Solomon's decision when he had to determine which of two women were the birth mother of a baby. He ordered the baby cut in half and then said, give one half to each of the women. One woman thought, great idea. The other begged Solomon to repeal his order and instead give the baby to her rival. It showed that that woman was the true mother because she loved her child enough to abandon it to someone else rather than see the child killed. Oh, wow. Where do you get wisdom like that? Well, here's what the Bible says, 1 Kings 3.28. Everyone in Israel was amazed when they heard how Solomon had made his decision. They realized that God had given him wisdom to judge fairly. Solomon didn't, he didn't see on the docket that day, huh, a woman with, uh, what if we cut the baby in half? 
I got it. He didn't have a think tank. He was judging at the moment. And if, if you're Solomon, you're thinking, what? Maybe he's got somebody flipping through the Genesis. Hey, find that chapter about cutting babies in half. <laughs> There's nothing like that. And so what happened? He asked for wisdom. Actually, he had previously asked, and God gave him wisdom whenever he needed it, whenever he wanted it. It was a gift from God. Verse 6, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. The doubting here has to do with the nature and the character of God. James had just said God gives liberally and without reproach. I should never think otherwise of God. I should not doubt his generosity. I should think of him as the one who wants to help me and not as one who has somehow left me to fend for myself. After all, God is a giver, a generous giver. He gave his only son. And how will he not give us all things that we ask for? He's already given us the greatest thing. Is he going to withhold anything else? Of course not. And so this is a person who doubts the nature of God to give him this wisdom. It's an all-too-human reaction in these kinds of circumstances to think that God has abandoned you, that he has turned his back on you. In the musical Fiddler on the Roof, how many have seen Fiddler on the Roof? All right, second service. You must be a little bit older than first service. (laughs) Tevye attempts to maintain his Jewish religious and cultural traditions as outside influences encroach upon the family's lives, not the least of which is them being expelled from Russia. At one point, Tevia says to God, sometimes I wonder when it gets too quiet up there if you're thinking, what kind of mischief can I play on my friend Tevia? It's a almost comical sort of lyrical way of putting into words something that is very human, the idea that God is playing mischief on us, that he could do otherwise, but he's putting us through the ringer or however you want to put it. This is an all-too-human reaction that we're to overcome by faith and believe God is immediately available to help us in our situation. James pictured them as waves being driven and tossed by the wind. Faith in God's generosity would calm them. Verse 7, for let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. In the recent Christian film, God's Not Dead, the characters had a saying they'd repeat to one another when things look bad. God is good. All the time, and all the time, God is good. If you doubt God's goodness, it's going to be impossible for you to receive his good gift of wisdom. He wants to give it generously, but you won't be able to receive it unless you first see him as the giver of good things, as the one who is working in you and who causes all things to work together for the good. So if you ask for wisdom and then think, well... But God, this is your fault. You, you, know, you, you put me in this situation. I don't know. Well, then God is he's ready to give you the gift, but you are, you're putting up a roadblock to it. You're, you're resisting his gift because you resent the situation. You don't really want wisdom, do you? You want deliverance. A lot of times we ask for wisdom when we really should, we're really asking for deliverance. And God says, no, I will give you wisdom to live through this situation if you ask for it and believe that I am generous and I will give it without reproach. I like that too. I mean, we could go on a whole tangent there. I deserve so much reproach in my relationship with God. And yet God says, I am not gonna reproach you. Let's just go from here. Let's just move forward 
and let me give you what I have for you. And then James says he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. There is no use of this word double-minded in Greek literature before it is used here by James. He uses the word twice in this letter and it is used nowhere else in the New Testament. James coined this special word to get his point across. If James were living today, he would own the domain doubleminded.org. This is his thing. And it's really very simple. It is literally translated two-souled. We do not have two souls. James is suggesting that after we're born again, we act as if we have two souls, one that is towards the Lord, but one that is towards the world. And obviously, we can't be facing both ways at the same time. And so James is saying, you're either towards the Lord and asking for his wisdom, or you're really in the world. For the Messianic Jews, James was writing to scattered as they were out in the world. Compromising with the world was a constant pressure. And not just the way we normally think by partaking of ungodly things. When you talk about compromise, we normally think, well, you're, you're compromising with sin and you're in these gray areas and that. And that's one thing, but think about it. When you get to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, there was intense pressure for Jews to return to Judaism. Many Jews would, in fact, return in order to end the persecution against them. And so you're a Jew in first century Israel. You receive Christ as your Savior He's the completion of the law, the fulfillment of all the rites and rituals. You start to have a freedom and a joy, and your family is not, they're not having it. The rest of the Jews, they're not having it. And so they start to persecute you. They plunder your goods. They get permission from the Roman government to take over your uh, place of employment, to uh, disbar you from uh, trade guilds and all of that. And then they say, all you need to do is come back to the temple. Do a few rites. Do a few rituals. Admit that you're wrong. Be a Christian, but be a Jew at the same time. And, and a lot of them did that. You know, I realized there's always a way out of persecution that is ungodly. When we're persecuted, when we're in some situation, there's always a way out that's ungodly. There's always a compromise that's ungodly. Not necessarily sinful in itself, but something ungodly that tears down your testimony of Jesus Christ. Instead of making a stand for him, you're tossed like a wave of the sea. Nobody knows what you believe because you're not uh, living up to your belief system. You're not living for something. A two-souled solution makes things worse. Such a person is unstable in all his ways. It just means to lack that sure foundation. So to vacillate between the Lord and the world leaves you on shaky ground. There's always pressure to be double-minded. It's especially difficult when God's wisdom tells you to go against the world. I mentioned Joseph and Daniel and his three friends. When God's wisdom meant defying the world, their very lives were at stake. For us, it may not be our lives per se, but it can mean our jobs or our family. Some of you have had family situations. I, I talk about this because it's my background. I, I was born uh, into a Roman Catholic Italian family. Now, nobody in my family had been to church for like 300 years, but <laughs> cumulatively, but we were Italian and we were Catholics, and that meant we were saved on some level because, after all, that's just the way the world works. But when I became a Christian, even though my dad, for real, had not been in church, I don't think ever since he got married, 
and they were married 70 years, that was a big deal. All of a sudden, I was some kind of a heretic. I was the Martin Luther of my family. Now, I know some of you have faced more intense pressure here in Kings County. There's a, a real Roman Catholic heritage here. And I've talked to people who sadly have compromised. They said, I don't want to lose my family. I don't want to offend granny. And so I'm going to do all the Catholic things that I always used to do. But I'm also going to do some Christian things. And that's your personal choice. But I'm, I guess obviously I'm suggesting that you may maybe need to take a stand at some point for that which is godly. Let me give you a quick summary of James' encouragement here because it is encouragement to a scattered people. You're scattered out in the world. You're away from your future home in the New Jerusalem. It's likely that often you'll find yourself in circumstances that leave you questioning God's goodness, feeling tossed to and fro as if you were a wave of the sea. But God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. He stands ready to help by giving you his wisdom on how you are to live righteously in your circumstances. The world will try to get you to compromise, but you should avoid being too sold and instead take your stand for the Lord, regardless the pressure to conform and the consequences of living for Christ. Wisdom is your standard for living the Christian life. Its foundation is the word of God and your knowledge of it is critical. But in the end, wisdom is a generous gift received by faith available to all believers anytime we ask. One more thing that's important before moving on. A little later in this letter, James will return to talking about wisdom. And what he does is tell us how we recognize when the wisdom we've received is from God and not just my own idea. Here's what he says in chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against this truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly and sensual and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so the goal is for you to make righteous decisions that will culminate in righteous actions. And James says you're going to need divine wisdom to do that, and God is going to give you that if you ask for it without doubting his character, and you'll be able to recognize it because it will have these characteristics. It won't be harsh. It won't be judgmental. It won't be self-centered. It will be meek and full of mercy and gentle and peaceable. You will have a peace about it. No matter that your circumstances may not change or they may actually get worse, you will know that you are doing the right thing. If your decision or behavior doesn't look like this description, then it's just not wisdom. Verses 9 through 11, wealth ought not to be your standard of living. Thinking again of Tevia, he also says this to God. It's cute. He says, it may sound like I'm complaining, but I'm not. After all, with your help, I'm starving to death. Oh, dear Lord, you made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, it's no shame to be poor, but it's no great honor either. So what would be so terrible if I had a small fortune? Again, a very common way of looking at things. Persecution left these scattered Jews impoverished. Those who had been wealthy were humiliated. Their situation was not likely to get any better. If James was writing around 50 AD, which he was, 
In less than two decades, any hopes of returning to Jerusalem would be dashed because Titus and the Roman legions would destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple at Jerusalem. Now, we know the history of ethnic Jews after that. Through the centuries, they would settle as immigrants all over the world, and they would find ways to become successful again until some new threat of persecution came against them, plundering their goods and pillaging their lives. James gave them a heavenly perspective on their standard of living as a persecuted people. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. By lowly, James meant social status and wealth. These believers were barely getting by, and it was getting worse for them the farther they get from Jerusalem out into Gentile territory. Yet all of the lowly could and therefore should glory in exaltation. How were they exalted? Well, there's a passage in the book of Romans where the Apostle Paul lists the following spiritual blessings that belong to all Israelites, even non-believing Jews. He says, to the Israelites pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Jesus Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. And so Paul says, you want to know what advantage it is to being a Jew? Let me list some spiritual blessings that the Jew has that no one else has. And it's a fantastic list. Believing Jews and Gentile Christians like ourselves, we're even more spiritually rich. In 2 Corinthians it says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And so the Bible just flat out declares that you and I are rich in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have been blessed, we're told, with every spiritual blessing. That's from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. His riches are described as unfathomable, Ephesians 3, 8. In the animated film, Megamind, how many? All right, younger generation, way to go. After endowing Hal with superpowers, Megamind tells him, You've been blessed with unfathomable powers. Hal's kind of stupid. He doesn't understand what it means, so Megamind tries to explain. He says, it's like uh, without fathom. (laughs) Now, I bring that up because I always feel that way trying to describe our riches in Jesus. I really can't fathom them. You say, well, what do you mean they're unfathomable? They're uh, without fathom. They're so deep. I mean, I, just, I don't have the poetry or the lyrics, lyrics to do it. We're accepted in the beloved, the Bible says. We're forgiven for Christ's sake, the Bible says. We're justified by his grace. We're kept by the power of God. And that's just scratching the surface. Later on, James himself will say in chapter 2, verse 5, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? You're rich, and you're an heir of the kingdom of God. Your earthly standard of living can change dramatically in a moment. That's why you're to glory in spiritual riches in Jesus, both now and to come, because they're being stored for you in heaven. Verse 10, but the rich should glory in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Now, the persecution against Messianic Jews did not discriminate. Wealthy Messianic Jews were forced to flee. This is a word for them to encourage them how to think about what they had lost. 
James basically says that those who trust in riches and pursue them above spiritual things are no more permanent than the flower of the field that withers under the hot desert sun. These scattered Jewish believers may have lost their wealth on earth, but what does it profit to gain the whole world if you lose your soul? And so James just reminding them, yes, you've lost everything. Now you're impoverished, but wealth is transitory. It's here today and gone tomorrow, and you can't take it with you. They, too, enjoy all spiritual blessings in Christ, and now perhaps they would appreciate them all the more. The Bible does not mandate a single standard of living for believers. It doesn't suggest we live communally, sharing all things in common. You can be wealthy. Many Bible characters were, in fact, wealthy. Just be aware that there are many warnings about money and the love of money and about pursuing wealth. It shouldn't be your pursuit. If God chooses to give you wealth, that's fantastic. Use it wisely, but it's not, you shouldn't pursue it as a standard of living. It's also easy to think God is blessing me if I have more, when in fact the more I have often gets in the way of my relationship with the Lord. We all know wealthy individuals who profess Christ or perhaps even possess salvation, but it just would seem that they're a little bit too caught up in their wealth, not really living for the Lord, not really doing anything for the Lord. Wealth is a, it can be a real stumbling block to spirituality. James' point here seems to be that if you are devastated by persecution and lose your wealth, and that was their situation, That's something to glory in because you are suffering for your testimony as a believer in Jesus Christ. Those who remain wealthy and are safe from persecution because they don't know the Lord or they're denying the Lord, those are the ones to be pitied. Think of Jesus. In Philippians, we're told that he left heaven to come to earth and took on a body of humiliation so that he could die on the cross and rise from the dead for your sins. He never ceased to be God but it's as if he took off his robe of deity and set it aside temporarily to take on a garment of humiliation. If Jesus did that for you, then we may have to do that for him. And so instead of pursuing wealth, we pursue Jesus. And if we're wealthy, praise the Lord. If we're poor, praise the Lord. Paul the Apostle said, I've learned how to abound. And that's hard. It's hard to learn how to abound. And he says, I've also learned how to be abased but he'll do them both as unto the Lord. When Solomon succeeded David as king over Israel, the Lord appeared to him and told him he could ask for anything he wanted. Solomon was the original wise guy. He asked for a wise and discerning heart. He asked for wisdom, and God gave it to him. Ask God, and he will generously give you wisdom. You don't have to be a Christian for very long. You don't have to even know very much about the Bible to receive the, regulus, uh, the, the regulator of divine wisdom to make decisions. Make wisdom your one-word resolution now and every day.